Good morning. Welcome to First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. We are a spiritual and spirited community dedicated to the free search for truth, meaning, and beauty. I'm Chris Jimerson. I'm Minister for Program Development here at the church, and I have with me Carol Jen, your wonderful lay leader this morning, and we welcome each of you here. I'd especially like to welcome our visitors here this morning. We're so glad you joined us, and we hope you'll join us again for coffee and conversation right after the service. We come from a long tradition of seeing a spark of the divine in every person, and it's in that tradition that I invite you to turn to those around you and greet the holy among us this morning. It's also our tradition in Unitarian Universalist churches to begin our services by lighting a chalice, which is a symbol of our faith. Please join me with saying the words for lighting our chalice, which are printed in your order of service. Love is the spirit of this church and service is its law. This is our great covenant, to dwell together in peace, to seek the truth in love, and to help one another. By Laura Wallace, and it's called Determined Seed. As frozen earth holds the determined seed, This sacred space holds our weariness, our worry, our laughter, and our celebration. Let us bring seed and soul into the light of thought, the warmth of community, and the hope of love. Let us see together, hear together, love together. Let us worship. Unitarian Universalism is a faith of many beliefs. There's not a creed, a set of beliefs that we all have to sign on to and agree to. So sometimes people ask us, well, if you don't believe the same thing, then what holds you together as a faith community? Well, here at this church, we have a set of religious values, and out of those values arose our mission. It's our common purpose as a congregation. We put it on our wall and we say it together every Sunday. Together we nourish souls, transform lives, and do justice to build the beloved community. Our reading this morning is a responsive reading. It's number 663 in the hymnal. One Small Face by Margaret Starkey. With mounds of greenery, the brightest ornaments, we bring high summer to our rooms as if despite the somberness of winter come. In time of want, when life is boarding up against the next uncertain spring, we celebrate and give of what we have away. All creatures bend to rules, even the stars constrained. There is a manifestance in the human need to go against the grain of cold and adversity. We make a holy day, the rituals varied as the hopes of humanity, reasons as obscure as ancient solar festival, as clear as joy on one small face. Now is the time in our service when we breathe together. Breathing together feeling the loving presence of those around us. We follow our breath 
to a deeper place inside. A place of greater ancient wisdom. That place where a spark of the divine resides within each of us. Breathing in, breathing out, we enter into a time of sacred silence together, remembering that human sounds and the sounds of small children are a part of the sacred silence in this congregation. Breathing together, let us now enter that time of sacred silence together. Well, here we are, back in the church, if not quite yet back in the sanctuary, after the church went dark for two weeks, literally. The building contractors had to cut the electricity so they could install a new power system. Last Sunday, we did our service over internet live streaming from our senior minister's house. That was kind of fun, but your ministers, Meg and I, have missed getting to be with you all in person, as have all of our church staff folks. So here we are back in the building, but with the construction still ongoing, and suddenly, at least it seems sudden to me, suddenly in the middle of the holiday season. We, we do plan to be able to give ourselves and each other a great big gift of being able to return to our newly expanded and renovated sanctuary, at least in time for our Christmas pageant and Christmas Eve services. <laughs> Merry Christmas indeed, <laughs> we hope. I'd like to talk today about the history and origins of some of the Christmas rituals and traditions we'll be observing here at the church, and for many of us, with our families and loved ones. I'm focusing on Christmas traditions and practices because they are those that we have inherited most directly from our Universalist and Unitarian forebearers. I want to note, though, that I found a listing of almost 40 different religious holiday observances from a variety of religions throughout the world that have been or will be observed between November 1 of this year and the middle of January 2019. They include the Hindu Diwali Festival of Lights, as well as a number of other faiths, faiths that hold light festivals, Hanukkah, Buddhists marking the day that the Buddha first experienced enlightenment, the Baha'i faith celebrating the birth of their founder, and Zoroastrian faith observing the death of their founding prophet. And that's just to name a few. Each of these have their own traditions and rich histories, and like with Christmas traditions and rituals, whether or not one believes the religious stories associated with them literally or not, I believe they help carry forward cultural memory. They convey understandings about the human condition and experience, indeed, about what it means to be human. They carry forward a people's values and priorities. They shape our relationships with one another and promote bonding and community building. And knowing something of the history and origins of our holiday observances may help us better understand those cultural memories they're conveying and the deeper meaning behind why they remain so important to us. Now, the rituals and traditions that we most commonly practice around Christmas here in the U.S. seem to have actually arisen from a variety, a sort of conglomeration of sources. 
And we also seem to have melded practices from secular origins and traditions from non-Christian practices with the Christian religious story of the birth of Jesus. Speaking of which, I love a meme that's been going around that says, three wise women would have asked directions, arrived on time, helped deliver the baby, brought practical gifts, cleaned the stable, made a casserole, and there would be peace on earth. A lot of women giving me the thumbs up on that one. <laughs> I also love how one of our Unitarian Universalist ministers at First UU Dallas, Aaron White, recently summarized in one paragraph the biblical story of Christmas and the life of Jesus. He writes, Jesus is born to an unwed teenage woman of color. She, the child, and her husband cross national borders without documentation, fleeing violence in their home country. The child grows up to be a homeless teacher who leads a radical movement of people that refuses the boundaries of creed, class, or role in society. He travels around giving a version of free health care to anyone who asks <laughs> and feeds the poor without judgment. He preaches a love so radical, an allegiance to, allegiance to relationship over power so compelling that it becomes illegal. The most powerful military force in the world deems him a threat. He is then tortured and executed by the state. Not quite the version I was taught in the little Southern Baptist church we went to when I was growing up. Something to think about, though, as our government lobs tear gas at women and children seeking asylum at our border. All right. So let's talk about how we think some of our Christmas practices may have originated and how they might have come to be associated with the Christian religious story of Jesus' birth. Let's start with putting up Christmas trees reflects ancient practices of a number of societies. These society would, societies would decorate with evergreen trees, wreaths, and garlands to remind themselves that life would return during this time of the year when cold winters could make the world seem lifeless and bleak, except for the evergreens. Because it was also the time of year for many societies when the days were short and there was far less sunlight, folks would often light candles on or near the evergreen elements they had brought into their homes. This is likely one of the places where our practice of lighting candles at Christmas, as well as decorating with Christmas lights, originated. I'm sure glad we have LED lights now. Putting candles on tree branches seems like a fire hazard to me, so... It is thought that the Germans of the 16th century originated the Christmas tree as we know it today. They were watching a popular play at the time that was about Adam and Eve, and the play had a prop called a paradise tree. This was a fir tree hung with apples to represent the Garden of Eden. Entranced by the paradise tree, Germans started bringing trees into their homes and decorating them. The Christmas tree became popularized in America and Britain when, in 1832, Charles Fallon, a Unitarian minister who had come here from Germany, and his wife put up a festively decorated tree. Their fellow abolitionist, Harriet Martineau, visited them and then wrote glowingly about the tree in the magazine Godey's Lady's Book. And then in 1846, Queen Victoria and her German husband, Prince Albert, were sketched in the London newspaper standing around a Christmas tree with their children, which made it even more popular in both Britain and in America. So, another of our traditions, Santa Claus, 
comes from several traditions about a bishop in 4th century Asia Minor called St. Nicholas. Left a lot of money by his parents when he died, who died when he was young, he helped the poor and gave secret gifts to people who needed them, especially children. This is likely part of from where the tradition of giving gifts at Christmas comes. In one of the legends, Dr. Nick, St. Nicholas helped the daughters of a very poor man who didn't have enough money for a dowry so that his daughters could be married, as was the custom of the time. St. Nicholas, so the legend says, secretly dropped a bag of gold down the chimney, and it fell into a stocking that had been hung by the fire to dry. Likely the origin of both our current practices of hanging Christmas stockings and the idea of Santa Claus coming down the chimney to deliver Christmas presents. Over time, the stories and images about St. Nicholas blended with myths about a gift-giving Father Christmas in England and a Kris Kringle in the U.S., and eventually all of these kind of got combined together to form the myths, stories, and practices we now associate with Santa Claus. So, how did these and other secular traditions get conflated with the Christian story of Jesus' birth, and how did we come to settle on December 25th as the date for it? Well, the truth is we don't know for sure. In fact, Christians around 200 A.D. thought that the birth had taken place on January 6th. They based this on some calculations some folks did over the events of Jesus' life that are outlined in the Bible. In fact, the modern Russian and Greek Orthodox churches still celebrate Christmas on this date. So it wasn't until the mid-4th century that most Christians moved the date to December 25th. How and why that happened is still a matter of some debate, but here is the most common theory. During this same time of the year that many cultures decorated with evergreens, most of them also had celebrations and rituals centered around solstice, the shortest day of the year, but the day that also harbingers the eventual return of the sun and longer days. That's right. Solstice falls on December 21 or 22 on our calendar, but in the Julian calendar of places like Syria and Egypt, it was on September, uh, December 25th and was celebrated as the Nativity of the Sun. That's S-U-N, Sun. It was observed with dramatic rituals where from within their shrines they would call out, The Virgin has brought forth, the light is waxing. In Egypt, the newborn son, again S-U-N, was even represented by the image of an infant. Well, over in Scandinavia, they celebrated Yule starting on December 12, igniting huge Yule logs that would burn for up to 12 days. This time of year was also when wine and beer made during the previous months was finally fermented and ready to start drinking, a fine tradition that many fine people continue on Christmas even today. The Romans celebrated Saturnalia, a time of drinking and general debauchery during which the social order would be reversed and peasants would party and demand that those who were their masters the rest of the year give them gifts, food, and libations to avoid being the victims of pranks and great mischief. Well, as the theory goes, Christian church leaders kind of co-opted these and other secular and pagan traditions and practices by putting Jesus' birth on December 25 as a way to sort of increase the chances that Christmas would get adapted through associating it with these existing rites and rituals. 
Well, after they did that, and all the way down through the Middle Ages, the practice of the poor celebrating raucously in a drunken, Mardi Gras-like atmosphere and demanding gifts from the wealthy continued. But only on Christmas Day and only after going to church that morning first. (laughs) Then along came Robert Cromwell and the Puritans who spoiled the fun for everyone. They canceled Christmas. Bill O'Reilly and Sean Hannity would have been incensed. (laughs) In fact, in the U.S., the Puritans even made it illegal to celebrate Christmas in the city of Boston. So, the only actual war on Christmas ever recorded was waged by Puritan Christians. (laughs) Just saying. It was actually the Universalists and some Unitarians who later began to restore the practices that have become how we now celebrate Christmas, especially the focus on home, peace, family, gifts for children and charity, though both the gifts to children and charity could and can still be used to reinforce the social hierarchy. So that is a, a very abbreviated summary of at least some of the possible origins of our Christmas traditions. I mentioned earlier that whether or not we believe in the story of Jesus' birth and life in a literal way, these practices and traditions convey cultural memory, human truths in metaphorical ways. Just in what we have discussed today, a number of these human understandings emerge. The cycle of birth life, death, and rebirth, the amazing evergreen tenacity of life, the magic and the creative potential of new life that a spark of the divine may manifest itself through any one of us, moving between seasons and again the circular patterns of nature, the values of generosity and charity, the importance of staying connected with family and loved ones, the power of ritual, communal bonding to hold societies together and support individuals even during challenging periods. The need for balance between light and darkness. And finally, the ways in which we must prepare ourselves for moving through liminal times. It strikes me that those last three hold powerful meaning and beauty for us as we move through the changes and disruptions here at the church during this holiday season. Liminal times are those time periods when we are in transition, at a threshold, leaving one condition behind but not yet fully where we're going. And like for some of the societies we've been talking about who were in transition from the shortest days of sunlight to the eventual return of the sun, limited by those shortened days and the coldness of winter, no crops to plant or harvest yet, travel and other activities limited by the cold weather, uncertain yet of when all this would change back again, these liminal times are often times of uncertainty and mystery. We are experiencing that here at the church. We've had to delay and reschedule activities due to the construction. We're worshiping in a temporary space even as we dream of reclaiming a larger and more beautiful than ever sanctuary, a place where we hope to welcome many more from our area who might find a spiritual home here and join us on our religious journey. 
And I am moved that during this very time of the year, our church itself was in darkness for a while to literally create enough power to make something new and even greater possible. That's synchronicity. Now, I don't associate light with all that is good and darkness with all that is difficult. For one thing, I think there's a racist cultural baggage inherent in such associations. So I think we need both. The seed needs darkness to germinate. The caterpillar goes into the cocoon before emerging anew as a butterfly. We need the night to sleep and restore ourselves. Likewise, too much light will burn the crops in the field, deprive us of healthy sleep, and disrupt nature's necessary cycles. So for me, there is something mystical about the intermingling of light and darkness. This time of year, I love to sit at night with just the Christmas tree lights and fireplace on. There is something about that interplay between the darkness and the glowing but limited light that fills me with awe and wonder and binds my soul to those long-ago ancestors that we've been discussing. This Christmas Eve, after the sun has set, we will do a ritual here at the church in which we will all hold a candle and then we will turn off the lights, light one another's candles until all of them are glowing, and sing Silent Night together. Again, that interplay creates such a powerful, mystical, and spiritual community experience for me. I believe in the spiritual power of this religious community. I believe we have the rituals and communal bonds that will move us with grace through this liminal time. I believe we have the wisdom to value the interplay of light and darkness, knowing it is together that they bless us with an amazing, evergreen tenacity and resilience. I believe that as we move through this holiday season and beyond it together, we will rebirth ourselves again and again as a religious community, a first Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin with all of the magic and creative potential of new life, manifesting the divine more and more in our world. So here we are. Happy, joyous, blessed holidays. Amen. Please join me in our words for extinguishing the chalice, which are printed in your order of service. We extinguish this flame, but not the light of truth, the warmth of community, or the fire of commitment. These we hold in our hearts until we are together again. Go now into your world. Create peace. Love largely, bless and be blessed. May the spirit of this season, or whatever spirit, may bring you comfort, strength, and courage be with you. Know that this church is not just a physical place. It is a faith and a religious community that is with you throughout daily life. May the congregation say amen, amen. and blessed be. Go in peace.
This is a production of the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. For more information, go to our website at austinuu.org.